You are listening to StarQuest Radio. I am Kurt Remke. So in our first episode of StarQuest Radio, we talked with Mark Anderson, the director of StarQuest Observatory, who went over many things that we can look forward to see in our night sky this month. After reviewing the episode, I noticed that he threw around a few terms that are common knowledge for most night sky observers and space enthusiasts, but might not be as recognizable to the rest of us. So I'd like to go over a few of these terms and break down their history and meaning for you in a new RL Trek for this mini-sode of sorts. When attending a night sky observation night at the StarQuest Observatory, you'll find a group of anxious kids and families huddled together, waiting to get a turn at the eyepiece. Behind each telescope is a patient and confident Fort Wayne Astronomical Society member, plugging numbers into a little remote control, muttering something like, All right, did anyone not get to see the M6 butterfly cluster? I'm about to move on to M13. After a moment of pause, nobody's speaking up, they punch the confirmation button, and the telescope's mechanics kick into gear as the scope's GPS computer tells its robotics where to point to find M13. It eases to a halt. The member checks the scope, maybe makes a few adjustments, and beckons a child over to take a look. When it's your turn, and as you move up to see M13, you wonder, what does M13 mean? M20, M57, M1, these identifications belong to a catalog called the Messier numbers. Messier, Charles Messier, was a French astronomer born in 1730. As a child, his town of Bandonville witnessed a solar eclipse. The magnificence of this sighting, along with his interest in seeing comets in the night sky, led him to become an astronomer and comet hunter. Comets are known to come from masses of small icy bodies. One of these is the Kuiper Belt, which is a disc-shaped region of these icy bodies and sits just past the orbit of Neptune. Every now and then, the gravitational forces of Neptune and Pluto will disturb this mass of icy bodies. sending some of them out to orbit towards the inner solar system to then be observed on Earth. When they get closer to the sun, the solar radiation will often break down the comet's nucleus, creating a streaking tail of ice, dust, and rocky particles. Other comet-producing bodies are the scattered disk and the Oort cloud, the latter being a huge cloud of icy objects that lies far outside of Pluto's orbit. This giant spherical cloud only exists in theory, as we see signs of its existence when comets are produced from that region. Many things in space are observed indirectly through evidence rather than with the bare eye or other forms of visual data. While some will claim that this is unreliable guesswork and attack the scientific method, it is worth pointing out that the Kuiper belt that I mentioned earlier, that was once only a theory just like the Oort cloud. We now have absolute evidence of the Kuiper belt's existence. The Oort cloud was named after Jan Oort, a highly influential Dutch radio astronomer 
who was one of the first astronomers to theorize the existence of dark matter, a hypothetical matter that, like the Oort cloud, has not yet been directly observed, but has been hinted at through its apparent effects on other elements of observable space. So as Charles Messier combed the night sky of these commonly observed comet behaviors, he started encountering other objects in the sky that were neither stars, planets, or comets, but unidentified fuzzy objects. Since he was very thorough and kept specific notes, he started making a list and numbering these objects, deeming them non-comets. As technology improved, telescopes became more powerful. Through newer telescopes, he and other astronomers started to notice that these objects are fuzzy because there are many objects being viewed in a very small concentration of space. These objects that Messier was once setting aside as non-comets were star clusters, nebula, and even other galaxies. We now look up with clarity and order as we have these Messier numbers to refer to. Visible right now, as Mark Anderson mentioned in our first episode, is M13, which is a globular cluster that sits within what we perceive to be the constellation Hercules. A globular cluster is a group of stars that are so tightly bound by a central gravitational force that they become more dense toward the body's central gravity. This creates a bright, spherical body that is made up of many stars. These clusters orbit the center of our Milky Way galaxy, or its galactic core. M13, the Hercules Globular Cluster, happens to be the brightest and best-known globular cluster in the northern sky. This cluster was actually first discovered by Edmund Halley in 1714, in which he noted, It is nearly in a right line with Zeta and Eta of Bayer, somewhat nearer to Zeta than to Eta, and by comparing its situation among the stars, its place is sufficiently near in Scorpio, 26 degrees and a half with 57 degrees north latitude. This is but a little patch, but it shows itself to the naked eye when the sky is serene and the moon absent. M13 was later catalogued by Messier, as he noted, In the night of June 1st to 2nd, 1764, I have discovered a nebula in the girdle of Hercules, of which I am sure it doesn't contain any star, having examined it with a Newtonian telescope of four feet and a half, which magnified 60 times it is round, beautiful, and brilliant, the center brighter than the borders. When one perceives it with an ordinary refractor of one foot, it may have a diameter of three minutes of arc. It is accompanied by two stars, the one and the other of the ninth magnitude. They are situated, the one above and the other below the nebula, and a little distant. I have determined its position as its passage of the meridian, and compared with the star Epsilon Hercules, its right ascension has been concluded to be 248 degrees, 18 minutes, 48 seconds, and its declination 36 degrees, 54 minutes, 44 seconds north. It is reported in the Philosophical Transactions, number 347, page 390, that Mr. Halley discovered by hazard that nebula in 1714. It is, he says, almost on a straight line with Zeta and Eta, according to Bayer, a bit closer to the star Zeta than to Eta. When comparing its situations between the stars, its place is rather close to Scorpius, 26 degrees and a half, with 57 degrees northern latitude. It is nothing but a small patch, but one sees it well without a telescope when the weather is fine, and if there is no light, of the moon.
While the M13 is beautiful to look at, its less observable history packs just as much intrigue. In 1974, the observatory in Arecibo, Puerto Rico was finishing up a remodeling of its radio telescope, which was the largest of its kind up until the year of 2016. To celebrate the occasion, they decided to send out a radio message, and because M13 was the largest and closest collection of stars in that current time and place, they chose it as the message's target. This message, nicknamed the Arecibo message, was put together by Dr. Frank Drake of Cornell University, which managed the observatory at the time. He also had help from others, including Carl Sagan. The message is a binary code that creates an image that, if it were interpreted by extraterrestrial life, would communicate information about life on Earth. There were seven parts of this one, message. Two, the first part three, wrote out the number four, system from 1 five, to 10. Six, the seven, second wrote out the atomic numbers of the elements that make hydrogen, up DNA. Carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, the third phosphorus. part wrote out the formula for the sugars and bases in the nucleotides of DNA. The fourth part depicts the number of nucleotides in DNA and also draws a visual of its double helix structure. The fifth part creates a simple graphic of the human figure and describes the average physical height of humanity, along with the current population size of humanity on Earth. The sixth is a graphic of the solar system, showing the sun and the position of the planets. The symbol of Earth also communicates to the interpreter that it is the planet from which the message is being transmitted from. The last part of the message draws out a graphic of the Arecibo radio telescope and the dimensions of the transmitting antenna dish. Well, that's it for this mini-sode. I hope you learned a thing or two about Messier numbers, globular clusters, comets, and even the Arecibo message sent to M13. These mini-sodes might pop up as I see fit, but I should have a new full-length episode coming up for the month of October. The Fort Wayne Astronomical Society and I would like to thank you for tuning in, and we invite you to come to the StarQuest Observatory on a clear Saturday night. The observatory is in the Jefferson Township Park at 1720 Webster Road, New Haven, Indiana, 46774. Like the Fort Wayne Astronomical Society on Facebook to receive updates on whether or not the observatory will be open on any given Saturday. Also, if you like this show, please subscribe on your favorite podcast service. We're now on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Also, please rate and review it on any of these services. This will help with circulation, which will in turn help spread local space knowledge. Thanks again, and see you next time on StarQuest Radio.